We prayed a moment ago that Christ would be merciful, that the Father would comfort those who are distressed, the poor and the homeless and the sick and the bereaved, the afflicted. And this morning, uh, we are going to hear from Jesus himself as he preached to some of his first disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and told them how he intended to bless those who were distressed and poor and homeless and sick and bereaved. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Uh, This morning, young Christians, little worshipers, young theologians in our midst, I don't know if you normally draw during the sermon, or if you're old enough, if maybe you take notes, but here's what I would like for you to do if you have a pencil or a crayon, and you can have, uh, if you can find space to draw somewhere, we are going to listen to Jesus say several times, blessed are people who do something, or blessed are people who live a certain way or feel a certain way. I want you to draw as many of those as you can while we preach through the passage what these people look like or what they do. See if you can draw a picture. For instance, he's going to say, blessed are those who mourn. So you might draw someone weeping and crying. And then he says, they will be comforted. So you might also draw someone comforting them, making them feel better. But draw those things this morning as we go through this passage And then circle the ones that you think are the most confusing. What are the ones that surprise you that Jesus would say, blessed are people like this? These are the first 11 verses out of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus sat down on the mountain and invited his own disciples to sit down with him and be taught to hear good news. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. You join me as we pray together. Lord Jesus, you have bent down to befriend and embrace us who are low, those of us who weep and mourn, who are in need of mercy. And everything in us resists and denies your descriptions. We don't want to see ourselves as weak and mourning and needy in any way. And yet this is what makes you such a paradox to us. This is what makes you such a confusing Savior. 
the mystery of your salvation for us that you not only associate with, but love and embrace and celebrate the weaker, less forceful things of this world. Because this is the kind of gentle and merciful and beautiful kingdom you are bringing Embrace us again this morning as we read and consider the good news of your tenderness toward us. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in the gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a poem that I love by the poet T.S. Eliot who wrestled through a lot of his life with the nature of God, whether or not he believed in God, with Christianity and the claims of the church, back and forth in faith and cynicism, T.S. Eliot struggled with the idea of what kind of kingdom Christ really intended and whether or not it was good. And he has a poem that confuses me, admittedly, but I love it. It's a great explanation. It's a great peek into this kind of confusing passage. It's entitled, The Hollow Men. It starts out, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpieces filled with straw. Alas, our dry voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. And the poem doesn't get sunnier as it goes on. It doesn't get happier and more hopeful. And the next to last stanza ends with these sort of half-hearted lines from the Lord's Prayer that we prayed a second ago, but he never finishes them. He says, For thine is our lives are, for thine is the... And then he stops, and the last stanza ends this way. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And it's that sort of counterintuitive sermon that Jesus opens his mouth to preach to his first disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way the kingdom enters. It doesn't come in with nuclear force, armies on the ground. It doesn't come in with sword and bloodshed and violent revolution. The kingdom enters not with a bang, but a whimper. And Jesus effectively says, blessed are they that whimper. And that's not the gospel that I want to hear. It's not the gospel that I want to get up here and preach to you because it's not very popular or easy to swallow. To hear Jesus say, if we were honest about it, blessed are the losers. I want him to tell me, and I expect him to tell me, blessed are the accomplished. Blessed are the diligent and the morally upright and the self-made. Those who think well and make good decisions and live piously and get things done. I want Jesus to bless all of our culture's heroes, all the people that we would admire in a very normal sense. 
want him to bless Abraham Lincoln and Gandhi and Frank Underwood and Tony Soprano and Walter White. And he doesn't. He says, blessed are the outcasts. We hear this very religiously and we hear it as nice news. Maybe we, after hearing it a time or two, get to hear it as good news. But it's odd that he would bless those who can't get ahead. Those who fall farther behind with every passing month and every passing year. Jesus says, blessed are those who seem to suck at life. The marginalized and the fragile and the weak and the helpless and the sad. Blessed are you if you live between oppression and slander. The hungry and tender and those who live without force or maybe suffer under it. Blessed are those who have nothing left, who cry themselves to sleep and struggle to make sense of life. When Jesus invited his disciples, when they followed him up onto the mountain and he sat down and he opened his mouth, they probably walked up with more optimism than he just fulfilled for them. And so Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. It stretches through three chapters in your Bible, three chapters in the book of Matthew. This sermon that's filled with all of these paradoxical sayings and all of these difficult commands, it's Jesus' second giving of the law, his re-explanation of the law of God and what real obedience looks like from the heart. But he starts with this ode to weakness. Blessed are the weak and low things of the world because this is the great reversal of Jesus' kingdom. These are the ones, these are the people, these are the types of communities that need the kingdom. These are the people who are not self-sufficient. We are the people who have real need, who have been brought low in the curse in our sin, our brokenness, all of the twisted ways that our hearts seem to mess everything up, all of the fractured ways that we interact in our relationships and frustrate each other and do harm to each other and need forgiveness and struggle to extend it to others. This is the great reversal of the kingdom. Blessed are those who are low, Because they are the ones God will raise up. What Jesus is doing in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, before he gives them any instruction, before he gives them any commands, go and live this way, before he challenges them with any convicting um, diagnosis, he sits down and he tells them and he tells us, That we need to see not only the world, but ourselves through his eyes. We live in a world 
of rugged individualism. We live in a world of force. We live in a world of accomplishment. And we shudder to think of ourselves as without some of those things, definitely without any of those things. We would hate to admit that we are people of nothing but need. And that's what Jesus calls us to see in this challenging and confusing opening to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is blessing those who have need because he is the Savior who delights to meet need. And we're all needy. Some of us have polished ourselves up. Some of us have tried to be polished by others to have our egos stroked. Some of us have tried to hide our brokenness and need. And Jesus comes gently and graciously to uncover it. And he starts out by saying, Most blessed are those who know their need, whose need is painfully plain to them because they can feel it. They really do hunger and thirst and yearn and crave righteousness and justice. They really do mourn because they know the world is not right yet and neither are they. So Jesus comes in to his first disciples and he comes to us this morning through his word and he says, if this is you, be hopeful, take comfort, be blessed because I will make you whole. I will set things right. My kingdom is coming in to undo this kind of brokenness and need. And if you don't feel your need, if you come to this passage and you hear other people described but not yourself, Jesus says, sit in it a little longer. Sit here and listen once again as I bless the people whom you don't want your name uh, listed among and yet you're one of them. You are hungry and pitiful and mournful in yourself. I'll point out to you that Jesus says, blessed are people who are this way. He doesn't start off by telling them to start being poor. He doesn't tell them to start mourning, to start being meek, to start being merciful Go and purify your heart so you can see God. Go and start becoming peacemakers. He starts the Sermon on the Mount. He starts his address to these first disciples, and he addresses us this morning with hope for those who admittedly and painfully feel hopeless, those who feel their desperation, who feel what is true of all of us on our own, apart from the grace of Jesus, apart from the embrace of God who welcomes us through the cross and resurrection of His Son, this is us. I showered this morning and I dressed and groomed myself so that I wouldn't look like one of these people, but Jesus tells me on my own, this is who I am. I have no best foot to put forward. I have no 
good impression to make on my own with you, because I don't know you and you don't know me. I can't impress you. I shouldn't. But I certainly can't with Christ. We can't come to Jesus who sees us plainly in all of our need, not with scorn, but with mercy and grace. We can't come to Him and pretend not to need what He loves to give. And so Jesus starts off not by telling them to do these things, but blessing those who already feel this kind of need. Blessed are those who crave. Blessed are those who are desperate and needy and aware of their own brokenness. Because my kingdom is for you, he says. As the sermon plays out, Jesus will revisit all of these themes and he will eventually give them commands. He will not just tell them, blessed are you who are pure in heart. He will describe what real purity in your heart looks like as he unpacks the law and says, this is what obedience in its purest form looks like, not just in action, but in your affections, in your desires, in your intentions. He will take on things like adultery, the outward action of infidelity, of sexual misconduct, but he'll cut it out at the root. He will will instruct them that real obedience to God's prohibition against adultery isn't just behavioral. It's in the heart. Lust is the root of adultery, he'll say. And he'll go after murder. We're all good with Jesus telling us not to murder. We agree you shouldn't kill people. Amen, Jesus. But he'll take on anger and hatred and grudges and resentment. He'll tell us the root of your murder, the root of the things you find despicable and sinful and broken. The real root is that evil desire that lingers in your heart that resents others who are made in the image of God. And so as the sermon unfolds, and I won't read the whole Sermon on the Mount for you this morning, his commands will simultaneously do several things for these disciples. And simultaneously, if you were to sit down and read them and study them together, they they simultaneously do many things to us all at once. We feel the condemnation of sin as he points out what real sin is and where it lives and lurks in those dark corners of our hearts. But he's not just preaching to condemn people and consign them to judgment. He condemns sin in order to evangelize and to preach the goodness of his kingdom and the gospel that his kingdom overcomes these things. And at the same time, he also gives us a picture of what the cost of real discipleship is, what it really will look like, what the burden will actually be, what it will take from me personally to follow Jesus really and truly. He explains the cost of discipleship, not in the abstract, but in very particular ways, giving me the shape of his discipleship, the shape of what my life and your life would look like following him in the paths of his righteousness, the paths that his feet have already cut 
It's a preview of all of the things that he will cut out and pull up by the roots as he tends us like a gardener. And what it will look like for him to plant real godliness in its place. It is simultaneously a very painful and a very beautiful picture of what it means to follow him as a savior, not just as individuals, but as a community. What it looks like to live as the glimpse and preview of his kingdom that's coming. If you go back and look at the passage that I read this morning, all of these are plural. It's not blessed is the poor in spirit individual. Blessed is the individual who mourns. Blessed is the meek, solitary person. He calls his disciples to follow him. And he gives them the shape of what it would look like to be this preview of the kingdom corporately as a community? What would it look like to live together under the gospel and grace of Jesus? It means that we would be, Ascension Presbyterian Church would be a people marked as those who are poor in spirit, who mourn and lament the things of this world that are not right. It means living as a people who are collectively meek, in the ways that you live with each other in gentleness, in the way that you encounter those around you in the community with real gentleness and meekness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to hunger and crave after the justice of God together. Jesus' commands through the rest of the sermon will give them more particulars, more specifics sometimes painfully and sometimes beautifully, of what this will look like for them as a people who are being constituted by His faithfulness. And all along the way, He promises restoration and redemption. But in the passage, also notice this. We whether individually or corporately, are not the ones who make these things happen. We are not the ones who do the blessing. We are the ones who are blessed. We have the need, and He has the blessing. He gives the grace. He brings the restoration. He brings the kingdom. He comforts, and He feeds, and He fills, and He extends mercy The pattern back and forth through all of the statements is blessed are you people who know your need, who know your character, who live this way together and in the world, but you are blessed because I will do these things for you. Blessed are those who mourn for someone else will come in and comfort them. As the sermon unfolds, it becomes clear it's God himself who comes and comforts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but not because they designed it and drew up blueprints and built it. You find out in chapter 6 that God is the one who brings the kingdom 
You see it maybe most clearly in verses 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek. Not that they earn the earth, but they inherit the earth. God gives His new creation to His new people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and crave, who are empty because they will be satisfied. God Himself will satisfy them with the righteousness they so desperately need, the righteousness we so desperately need and long for. So here's Jesus' point in all of this. As Jesus sat down and His disciples sat with Him, as we sit with Him this morning... By the way, it's a beautiful rhythm in our worship that we spend our week living our lives and engaging work and serving others and being served and making our needs known and loving each other in fellowship and friendship and things like your home groups and reading and studying together and encountering need and skepticism and disbelief through the week. And then we come together and we worship And we celebrate, but there's a time set aside where we, like those first disciples, come and sit. And Jesus opens his mouth through the word given by his spirit. And we ponder these things. We are taught. He went up on the mountain, they sat down, and he taught them. And so this morning we have come together and you literally... After standing to sing, you sat down to be taught, not by my words, but to hear Jesus' words to you. And here is Jesus' point as he's gathered us together to sit and to be taught, to sit and ponder with him, to take a break and rest for a moment and imagine his kingdom, to hear it described and held out to us. Here's his point. Blessed are those who cannot deliver themselves and yet know they need His deliverance. Blessed are those who can feel it and who hunger for it and cry out for it, who pray for it and yearn for it, but who know they can't make it themselves. Blessed are those with this kind of dependence and humility but not passivity because that's where Jesus meets us. In in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling for anything but passivity on our parts. As much as there might be a passive description of just our state of being in this opening piece, it's supposed to awaken this hunger and this hope And this crying out and this mourning, it's supposed to drive us to our knees in prayer. I've used this illustration before, but you haven't heard it, so I get to use it again. As Joe said when he introduced us, we moved from Dallas, Texas this summer, (coughs) excuse me, to Oregon, and we love it here, but we didn't swim our way through the summer the way we did in Dallas. In Dallas, the temperatures are over 100 And it's so humid, you could swim through the air if you wanted to. It's oppressive. 
And both of our parents lived in Dallas, and they loved having their grandkids close, and we have since ripped their grandkids away from them. But both of our parents had pools because that's the way you survive a Texas summer. And our kids have swum from early ages. They've taken lessons, and they're quite adept because we swim eight hours a day, five days a week at least. And our youngest son, who's now five, Ford, He's not listening. After his first year of swim lessons, he spent the summer practicing and getting very adept. He could swim across the pool. He could dive down to the drain in the deep end. And he was probably three. The swimming season in Dallas is a lot longer than you would expect. The first day that we swim is normally Easter Sunday. So we have Easter lunch with our family, and then our kids jump in the pool. And sometimes they brought swimsuits, and sometimes they have to borrow from their grandparents. But we don't have ours with us. We're in our Easter best, our finest apparel. And we were sitting outside after lunch, and our kids were getting in the pool, and Ford very excited for the first day of swimming. And remembering that he could swim last year, just stripped down, got in the swimsuit, ran, and dove into the deep end with his brother and sister. But it had been at least six months since he'd been in a pool. It was entirely foreign to him. He kind of remembered you're supposed to breathe above water and hold your breath underwater, but that was about it. And so he just sort of bobbed in the deep end and held his head up so he could breathe. And he yelled for me to come and help him He yelled for me, and he breathed his head barely above water in a physical picture of what Jesus has described at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He lived in that kind of yearning desperation. He cried out for deliverance because he could feel his need that vividly, but he was anything other than passive. He very actively hoped and yearned and, in this broken analogy, prayed for deliverance from someone to come from the outside and rescue him. Jesus sat down on the mount with his first disciples and he has seated us this morning to hear the good news that he dives into our world. He makes himself low in order to lift us up and carry us into the kingdom. To tell us the painful news that self-sufficiency is an illusion, that self-made godliness is evil, but that His goodness, His righteousness that comes in from outside of us, His provision that invades our need, These things are really good. This is what his kingdom is like. In his grace, he strips us of all the false notions of a kingdom that we might design. And he tells us about the beauty of his kingdom. Jesus went up and he sat down. And he asked people like us to come and sit with him and explore the kind of kingdom he's establishing because he came down to our low place to sit with us 
Jesus said, Blessed are they who whimper now and know the lack of their own strength, because Jesus, our strong Redeemer, lifts us up and carries us into His kingdom, where our mourning is put away, where our hunger is stopped and satisfied, where His righteousness fills us and His justice pervades creation. Amen. You join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the goodness of your kingdom. We praise you for even the odd ways that you promise your redemption, the way your redemption meets our desperation and our need, overcomes our pride and our illusions of self-sufficiency, Lord Jesus, would you let us feel our poverty? Would you let us really mourn over our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world around us? Would you make us as your church a community that is marked by meekness and gentleness? Would you make us people who crave and yearn for your righteousness? By your grace, would you take our sin-sick hearts and make them pure? Would you take away our violence and our grudges and our desire for retaliation and vindication, and would you instead make us peacemakers? Oh, Jesus, would you make all of these things true of us? Because in your goodness, you strip us of all false notions of what your kingdom should be, And you tell us how your kingdom is, what your kingdom will be, what it looks like to live as the church, as this preview of the fullness of your kingdom that we yearn for and that we pray for together. Lord Jesus, we pray, just as you taught your first disciples, that your kingdom would come. And in your grace... Would you make us fit for it by granting us this kind of humility? Grant us this view of ourselves and the world around us. Help us to see not just our sin, but real holiness through your eyes, to appreciate the beauty of your character and your gentleness, that you would come as the king of all creation and make yourself low in order to stoop down and pick us up. Lord Jesus, would you carry us into your kingdom? Would you also give us the privilege of seeing others drawn in? Would you grant faith to replace doubt in those who live around us, those who have not found this kind of odd and counterintuitive hope and rest? Lord Jesus, you have blessed us Would you continue to do so? We ask these things for your glory, for the expanse of your kingdom that comes only by your grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.